0: part one chapter three of tess of the d'urbervilles this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three as for tess d'urberville she should not so easily dislodge the incident from her consideration she had no spirit to dance again for a long time though she might have had plenty of partners, but, ah, they did not speak so nicely as the strange young man had done. It was not till the rays of the sun had absorbed the young stranger's retreating figure on the hill that she shook off her temporary sadness and answered her would-be partner in the affirmative. She remained with her comrades till dusk, and participated with a certain zest in the dancing, though being heart-whole as yet. She enjoyed treading a measure purely for its own sake, little divining when she saw— the soft torments, the bitter sweets, the pleasing pains, and the agreeable distresses of those girls who had been wooed and won, what she herself was capable of in that kind. The struggles and wrangles of the lads for her hand in a jig were an amusement to her no more, and when they became fierce she rebuked them. She might have stayed even later, but the incident of her father's odd appearance and manner returned upon the girl's mind to make her anxious and wondering what had become of him she dropped away from the dancers and bent her steps towards the end of the village at which the parental cottage lay while yet many score yards off other rhythmic sounds than those she had quitted became audible to her sounds that she knew well so well there were a regular series of thumpings from the interior of the house occasioned by the violent rocking of a cradle upon a stone floor to which movement a feminine voice kept time by singing in a vigorous galopade, the favourite ditty of the spotted cow I saw her lie down in yonder green grove. Come, love, and I'll tell you where. The cradle rocking and the song would cease simultaneously for a moment, and an exclamation at highest vocal pitch would take the place of the melody. God bless thy dimmed eyes, and thy waxen cheeks, and thy cherry mouth and thy cubit's thighs, and every bit of thy blessed body. After this invocation, the rocking and the singing would recommence, and the spotted cow proceed as before. So matters stood when Tess opened the door, and paused upon the mat within it, surveying the scene. The interior, in spite of the melody, struck upon the girl's senses with an unspeakable dreariness. "'From the holiday gaieties of the field—the white gowns, the nose gaze, the willow wands, "'the whirling movements on the green, the flash of gentle sentiment towards the stranger, "'to the yellow melancholy of this one candid spectacle—what a step! "'Besides the jar of contrast, there came to her a chill self-reproach that she had not returned sooner "'to help her mother in these domesticities, instead of indulging herself out of doors.' There stood her mother amid the group of children as Tess had left her, hanging over the Monday washing-tub, which had now, as always, lingered on to the end of the week. Out of that tub had come the day before, Tess felt it with a dreadful sting of remorse, the very white frock upon her back, which she had so carelessly greened about the skirt on the damping grass, which had been wrung up and ironed by her mother's own hands. As usual, Mrs. Derbyfield was balanced on one foot beside the tub, the other being engaged in the aforesaid business of rocking her youngest child. The cradle-rockers had done hard duty for so many years, under the weight of so many children, on the flagstone floor, that they were worn nearly flat, in consequence of which a huge jerk accompanied each swing of the cot, flinging the baby from side to side like a weaver's shuttle, as Mrs. Durbeyfield, excited by her song, trod the rocker with all the spring that was left in her after a long day's seething in the suds. "'Nick-knock, nick-knock,' went the cradle. "'The candle flame stretched itself tall and began jiggling up and down. "'The water dribbled from the matron's elbows, "'and the song galloped on to the end of the verse, "'Mrs. Durbeyfield regarding her daughter the while. "'Even now, when burdened with a young family, "'Joan Durbeyfield was a passionate lover of tune. "'No ditty floated into Blackmore Vale from the outer world, "'but Tess's mother caught up its notation in a week.' there still faintly beamed from the woman's features something of the freshness, and even the prettiness of her youth, rendering it probable that the personal charms which Tess could boast of were in main part her mother's gift, and therefore unknightly, unhistorical. "'I'll rock the cradle for ye, mother,' said the daughter gently, "'or I'll take off my best frock and help you ring up. I thought you'd finished long ago.' Her mother bore Tess no ill-will for leaving the housework to her single-handed efforts of so long. Indeed, Joan seldom upbraided her thereon at any time, feeling but slightly the lack of Tess's assistance, whilst her instinctive plan for relieving herself of her labours lay in postponing them. To-night, however, she was in a blither mood than usual. There was a dreaminess, a preoccupation, an exultation in the maternal look which the girl could not understand. "'Well, I'm glad you've come.' "'her mother said as soon as the last note had passed out of her. "'I want to go and fetch your father, but what's more than that, "'I want to tell you what have happened. "'You'll be fessin' up my poppet when thus know.' "'Mrs. Derryfield habitually spoke the dialect. "'Her daughter, who had passed the sixth standard in the National School "'under a London-trained mistress, spoke two languages, "'the dialect at home, more or less, "'ordinary English abroad and to persons of quality. "'Since I've been away?' Tess asked. Ay, had it anything to do with father's making such a moment of himself in thick currants this afternoon why did her i felt inclined to sink into the ground with shame that were all a part of the larry we've been found to be the greatest gentlefolk of the whole county reaching all back long before oliver grumble's time to the days of the pagan turks with monuments and vaults and crests and scutcheons, and the Lord knows what all in St. Charles's days, we was made knights of the Royal Oak, our real name being d'Urberville. Don't that make your bosom plim? Twas on this account that your father rode home to the Vle, not because he'd been drinking as people supposed. I'm glad of that will it do us any good, Mother? Oh yes, tis thought it. "'that great things may come out. not "'No doubt a mumpus of Volk in our own rank "'will be down here in their carriages as soon as tis lone. "'Your father learnt it on his way home from Shaston, "'and he's been telling me the whole pedigree of the matter.' "'Where's father now?' asked Tess suddenly. "'Her mother gave irrelevant information by way of answer. "'He called to see the doctor today in Shaston.' "'It's not a consumption at all, it seems. "'It is fat round his art,' he says. "'There is like this,' Joan Doverfield, as she spoke, "'curved a sodden thumb and forefinger to the shape of the letter C, "'and used the other forefinger as a pointer. "'At a present moment,' he says to your father, "'your heart is enclosed all round there and all round there. "'This space is still open,' he says. "'As soon as it do meet, so?' Mrs. Derbyfield closed her fingers into a circle complete. "'Off you will go like a shatter, Mr. Derbyfield,' he says. "'You may last ten years. You may go off in ten months or ten days.' Tess looked alarmed, her father possibly, to go behind the eternal cloud so soon, notwithstanding the sudden greatness. "'But where is father?' she asked again. Her mother put on a deprecating look. "'Now don't you be bursting out angry. The poor man—' "'He felt so rafted after his up-fifteen by the parson's news "'that he went up to Rolliver's half an hour ago. "'He do want to get up his strength for his journey to-morrow "'with that load of beehives which must be delivered, family or no. "'He'll have to start shortly after twelve to-night, as the distance is so long.' "'Get up his strength,' said Tess impetuously, "'the tears welling to her eyes. "'Oh, my God! Go to a public-house!' "'to get up his strength. "'And you as well agreed as e, mother.' "'Her rebuke and her mood seemed to fill the whole room "'and to impart a cowed look to the furniture, "'and candle and children playing about and to her mother's face. "'No,' said the latter touchily, "'I be not agreed. "'I've been waiting for E to bide and keep house "'while I go and fetch him. "'I'll go. "'Oh, no, Tess, you see, it would be no use.' "'Tess did not expostulate.' She knew what her mother's objection meant. Mrs Durbeyfield's jacket and bonnet were already hanging slyly upon a chair by her side in readiness for this contemplated jaunt, the reason for which the matron deplored more than its necessity. And take the Complete Fortune-teller to the outhouse, Joan continued, rapidly wiping her hands and donning the garments. The Complete Fortune-teller was an old thick volume which lay on a table at her elbow, so worn by pocketing that the margins had reached the edge of the type. Tess took it up, and her mother started. This going to hunt up her shiftless husband at the inn was one of Mrs. Durbeyfield's still extant enjoyments in the muck and muddle of rearing children. To discover him at Rolliver's, to sit there for an hour or two by his side and dismiss all thought and care of the children during the interval, made her happy. A sort of halo, An occidental glow came over life then. Troubles and other realities took on themselves a metaphysical impalpability, sinking to mere mental phenomena for serene contemplation, and no longer stood as pressing concretions which chafed body and soul. The youngsters, not immediately within sight, seemed rather bright and desirable appurtenances than otherwise. The incidents of daily life were not without humorousness and jollity in their aspect there, she felt little as she had used to feel when she sat by her now wedded husband, in the same spot during his wooing, shutting her eyes to his defects of character, and regarding him only in his ideal presentation as lover. Tess, being left alone with the younger children, went first to the outhouse with a fortune-telling book, and stuffed it into the thatch. A curious, fetishistic fear of this grimy volume on the part of her mother prevented her ever allowing it to stay in the house all night, and hither it was brought back whenever it had been consulted. Between the mother, with her fast-perishing lumber of superstitions, folklore, dialect, and orally transmitted ballads, and the daughter, with her trained national teachings and standard knowledge under an infinitely revised code, there was a gap of two hundred years, as ordinarily understood. When they were together, the Jacobean and the Victorian ages were juxtaposed. Returning along the garden path, Tess mused on what the mother could have wished to ascertain from the book on this particular day. She guessed the recent ancestral discovery to bear upon it, but did not divine that it solely concerned herself. Dismissing this, however, she busied herself with sprinkling the linen dried during the daytime in company with her nine-year-old brother, Abraham, and her sister, Eliza Louisa, of twelve and a half, called Liza Lou, the youngest ones being put to bed. There was an interval of four years and more between Tess and the next of the family, the two who had filled the gap having died in their infancy, and this lent her a deputy maternal attitude when she was alone with her juniors. Next in juvenility, to Abraham, came two more girls, Hope and Modesty, then a boy of three, and then the baby, who had just completed his first year. All these young souls were passengers in the Derbyfield ship, entirely dependent on the judgment of the two derbyfield adults for their pleasures their necessities their health even their existence if the heads of the derbyfield household chose to sail into difficulty disaster starvation disease degradation death thither were these half-dozen little captives under hatches compelled to sail with them six helpless creatures who had never been asked if they wished for life on any terms much less if they wished for it on such hard conditions "'as were involved in being of the shiftless house of Durbeyfield. "'Some people would like to know whence the poet, "'whose philosophy is in these days deemed as profound, "'and trustworthy as his song is breezy and pure, "'gets his authority for speaking of nature's holy plan.' "'It grew later, and neither father nor mother reappeared. "'Tess looked out of the door, and took a mental journey through Marlott. "'The village was shutting its eyes.' "'Candles and lamps were being put out everywhere. "'She could inwardly behold the extinguisher and the extended hand. "'Her mother's fetching simply meant want more to fetch. "'Tess began to perceive that a man in indifferent health, "'proposed to start on a journey before one in the morning, "'ought not to be at an inn at this late hour celebrating his ancient blood. "'Abraham,' she said to her little brother, "'do you put on your hat? You've been afraid?' "'And go up to Oliver's and see what has gone with father and mother.' "'The boy jumped promptly from his seat and opened the door, "'and the night swallowed him up. "'Half an hour passed yet again. "'Neither man, woman, nor child returned. "'Abraham, like his parents, "'seemed to have been limbed and caught by the ensnaring inn. "'I must go myself,' she said. "'Liza Lou then went to bed, and Tess locking them all in, started on her way up the dark and crooked lane or street not made the hasty progress a street laid out before inches of land had value and when one-handed clocks sufficiently subdivided the day End of chapter three